haven't we passed two million vaccines administered in Arizona now? Yes. And adverse events are negligible. For a lot of people, what matters is everyone I know that's gotten vaccinated had a good experience and some people had sore arms and stuff. And some people on the second shot took a nap afterwards. <laughs> but the more good stories there are, the less resistance there will be. One thing that we have to keep our eyes on is that this is not the last time we're going to face a pandemic. There are more bugs out there. And what we don't want to do is to fall into complacency and said, yep, we licked that one and we're good to go now. We need to take the lesson from this that in the future, we need to maintain a robust public health system. We need to think about how we're going to respond to future infections. I think we saw a lot of flaws in our system and we are aggressively making the improvements, but I hope that continues. And I hope we don't forget that, not just medical and public health, but systems in general that are broken and not ideal. And we're addressing them. And I hope that we continue to take a more proactive approach to evaluating our systems and how we can improve them without requiring another pandemic. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and today marks an anniversary. It has been one year since this podcast's COVID-19 roundtable began. In those early moments while we were busy sorting out what we were facing, it was fairly well understood that the pandemic was not a short-term event. Yet this 26th roundtable discussion seems a little surreal as we all harbor guarded hopes for better days ahead. The last 12 months have been a terribly rocky road. Through politicization of public health interventions that disfigured the U.S. response, through the prism of systemic racism with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, through rapid cycles of scientific data, healthcare experiences, and vaccine development, and through the reality that American healthcare resources are not without limits. Many people stayed home, many others risked their lives in essential roles. We were asked to distance from each other when all we wanted was to be together. We were unable to recognize life milestones in traditional ways. On top of all that, three long-standing American myths of equality, abundance, and exceptionalism got shaken to their core. Which is why it seemed like the right time to spend this roundtable separating the wheat from the chaff. What and who and how did we lose? What did we learn? If anything, what did we gain? How, as of this moment anyway, might we go forward? For that matter, what did the next one, three, or six months look like? These are the questions we'll approach on our one-year anniversary of the Vitalist Spark COVID-19 Roundtable. With apologies to Clint Eastwood, it's time to take a look back and a look forward at the good, the bad, and the ugly of COVID-19 as of March 15, 2021. We are so fortunate to have some incredible guests to bring us into the beginning of the second year of this roundtable. With us today, one of the guys who was there from the very beginning, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how are you doing today? Good. I'm sitting in the same chair in the same studio that we started with this and exactly a year ago. Which kind of feels right. Yeah. Also joining us from Arizona State University, Dr. Joshua LaBear. Josh, how are you doing? I am doing great. And it's always good to be here. Really glad to have you. And our most recent member of the roundtable, who has just been fabulous, from Valleywise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Enjoying seeing my parents post-vaccine and happy to celebrate this anniversary on the other side. Amen to that. Let's get going. Oh, happy 
Will, you really want to talk about the anniversary? Yeah. We have loyal listeners. It's their anniversary, too. All right. We got an anniversary today, Will. Yeah. Happy anniversary. We started these podcasts exactly one year ago this week. So this is episode number 26. We've been doing them every two weeks for the last year. We never even took like Christmas or New Year's or anything like that off. And John and Rob, you guys have been doing a great job and all the guests. Congratulations. And thanks for the idea. We finished that very first podcast, remember, a year ago. It was going to be a one and done. And at the end, John and I and whoever else was in the room were like, hey, what if we did this every two weeks? It would be kind of our diary throughout the pandemic. And John's like, yeah, we've been doing it ever since. It makes you wonder, though, doesn't it? We are here marking the one-year anniversary of this roundtable, and the world marked the one-year anniversary of the pandemic because that was the day that sports shut down. Yeah, the NCAA college tournament. That's the thing that I remember. And the NBA season as well. It, It wasn't real until that happened. Yeah. When March Madness ends, as much as was that financially at stake for them to cancel that, no one made any of those franchises or organizations do it. They were all doing it on their own. You're right. That was a wake-up call. More maybe even than WHO saying that it's a pandemic. Unlike any episode before it, we're going to start this one with a game. The game today is called The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. Referring first to the last two weeks. Give me your good, your bad, you're ugly. I'm going to start with Kara. I think the good is things in the hospital are getting better. We're doing more routine procedures and we are having visitors into the hospital, which is great for patients. The hospital feels like it's working the way it used to. The bad is we're still struggling to go forward. I think everyone feels like it's back to normal, but it's not. And I don't think we're out of the woods yet. We're getting there, but I think with people traveling for spring break, there's going to be an uptick. I don't think it's going to be as bad and I don't think it's going to be as deadly, but I still think it's going to be there. The ugly, I wonder how much we have learned from this experience. I think there's still a lot of broken systems that we haven't fixed and I hope that we see the way forward to be able to fix them so that if anything ever happens like this again, we'll be able to address it in a more efficient, timely manner. Josh, You've appeared on this podcast with a Western hat in your background. Clint Eastwood, I believe, was the star of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Right. Let's hear your good, your bad, and your ugly for the last two weeks. I would say the good is that we are continuing to make progress in getting vaccines in arms. We're topping 11 or 12% in the state, which is really encouraging. And so far, at least to my knowledge, nobody who's been vaccinated has ended up severely ill. So that's a really good sign. Bad is... We are still not getting that distributed to everybody. So people with good computer access and people who are electronically savvy seem to be able to get appointments, but there's a lot of people in the state who haven't yet figured out how to get those appointments and we need to do better at reaching them. The ugly, I would say, is we are starting to see a serious rise in S gene dropouts, which means that the B117 strain is starting to really take hold in Arizona. It's more than just a few here and there. It, it looks like it's a concerted rise. And so that may start to creep up on us. What does that mean? Well, this is the UK variant of the virus and it's much more transmissible. If it really takes hold in the state, it will increase the number of people that need to get vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity. We're in a race between vaccinations and the dominance of that variant. The test that we use at ASU involves three genes from the virus. 
two of them are unaffected by this strain, but one of them doesn't work with this strain. And so we can sort of tell when we have a UK variant because we get two genes working and one gene not. It's a pattern we get. It's not 100%. We really technically need to send them out for sequencing, which we are doing. And almost always they come back as the UK strain, but occasionally we get a few that are not. It's interesting. I didn't know you could do that or get that good of a clue without doing the sequencing. Yeah, there's been a publication out of the UK that actually showed that this UK variant is actually a bit more deadly than the one that we've been dealing with. And they did it all based on S gene dropouts. They didn't even sequence most of theirs. They just did it by the S gene dropout. But the vaccine is effective. That is against true. It, obviously, the vaccine and is absolutely effective against this. Yes. Was this expected, or is this because people are traveling, or I think it was inevitable. Is probably the word to use because there have been a few people who came to the state who traveled who brought it. But this is such a transmissible variant, and we don't really know why yet. But it is so transmissible that it seems to sort of take over whenever it gets into a community. Well, we haven't gotten to you yet. It's high noon at the good and the bad and the ugly. Oh, yeah. My good is two things. President Biden got Johnson & Johnson and Merck together to mass produce more vaccine for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which to me, that's like having a brand new vaccine <laughs> authorized because the manufacturing capacity just increased by a ton. That's one good. And another good is that President Biden also had a meeting with ASEAN Group, the Asian Pacific Coalition of Countries, and made a commitment at that meeting to use the full force and weight of the federal government in the United States to help India meet their goal of producing a billion vaccines by the end of the year. Why is that so good? A, it's the right thing to do, because as a developed country and the high GDP that we have, we have an obligation to help developing nations. But number two, the more this virus bumps around the world and there's 7 billion susceptible people or not quite 7 billion susceptible anymore because of the infections and vaccines, but it can still mutate and create a whole bunch of new variants and nobody wants to learn the word COVID-22, which could happen if the virus keeps circulating in those underdeveloped countries. So that's a good. The ugly, I'll just use the same ugly that Josh did, which is we're still not getting the kind of penetration that we need of the vaccine into lower income communities. Although I think there's some awareness now at the state level that it's a problem, not that they've fixed it, but the first thing is admitting you have a problem and then you can start dealing with the problem. So that's the ugly. The bad has been my prep project for the last two weeks, which is about two weeks ago today, the state health department went to a strictly age-based priority system where now most of the counties are at 55 and up for which you qualify, which there's merit to it. I don't dispute the issue. I mean, I, I think there was a lot of merit in going to the age-based system, but 
People with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families have been waiting patiently to get vaccinated. Many other states had people with intellectual disabilities in Category 1B where they were already vaccinated. Our state had them in 1C. And now with the age-based system, there is no more such thing as 1C. There's like 16,000 people on access as it's called long-term care program. These are people who live at home, who go to day programs and things like that. They don't live in a group home. But now their parents and guardians are like, oh, my kid with Downs, I, I, I was about to get them vaccinated. And now they have to wait. And since they're 35, they're going to have to wait till June probably to qualify. So well, I worked hard at getting that advocacy and they're just not going to do it. I mean, they basically said, no, there's too many other people who want specialty access to the vaccine and we're not going to do it, even though there's very good evidence that people with intellectual disabilities are at a much higher risk for complications, not just getting the virus, but also having a bad outcome. And people with Downs, for example, are at 10 times higher risk of dying from COVID, even after controlling for weight, age and heart conditions and stuff like that. That's my bad. Didn't President Biden say that by May 1st, all ages should have access? Yeah, yeah. So six weeks. It's a shame that they had a plan and then they changed it midstream. Yes and no. Here's the thing about changing that plan. We were embarking on 1C, which was a category of adults with chronic medical conditions. Let's say you're a vaccinator, whether it's a pharmacy or wherever you are, especially at the mega sites, and you're trying to say, well, prove to me that you have hepatitis right. C. Prove to me that you have a type 2 diabetes. Where's your insulin? I mean, it's <laughs> awkward. Yeah. And I don't think it was doable. Yeah. The age thing is doable because you're like, okay, let me see your ID. Boom, yeah. done, go. But the people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, among others, were really left out in the cold. And I thought this was an area where we could get consensus with the governor and the health director, but sadly they are unwilling to do that. So that was why I said that was my bad. It's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly level two. Reflect back on the year since this podcast started. Tell us about the bad, tell us about the truly ugly, and find a little bit of good. Josh? I'm going to start with the good. The good is that a lot of people over the course of this year really stepped up to try to help the community in whatever way they were capable of doing it. I was overwhelmed when we first started our saliva testing and we were just getting going and we put out a call on a Friday afternoon at like 2 p.m. If anybody knows someone who could volunteer, please let us know. And within three hours, three hours, we had over 300 volunteers. That's how long it took for people to say, yes, I will come and help. And over the course of the weekend, it doubled. I mean, it was just amazing. And I think you could see that throughout the community, people stepping up and trying to help and doing what they could. The flip side of that, the ugly, was just this ridiculous politicization of simple measures that people could do to prevent the spread of a virus that has become the number one killer in our state and in the country. And just the unwillingness of people to just recognize that something as simple as mask wearing could help and save lives and why they had to make that into a political thing, I don't fully get. And I guess the bad is the number of deaths we've seen, not to mention the number of people ill that we've seen, staggering numbers that have left heart disease and cancer in the dust. So I guess those are my three. Kara, you're going to close. I'm going to ask Will to go next. Well, I had different threes, but Josh's were so good, I want to use his. Each one he said, I'm like, that's better than mine. I'm going to go with Josh. It's 
people coming out of the woodwork to help, whether it was you volunteering for a clinical trial, whether it's volunteering for one of the megapods, whether it's volunteering like Josh was talking about when they were doing the saliva tests, the sense of community. The ugly is, yeah, I agree. It was that, you know, the politicization of the masks. And to my knowledge, we're the only country where this happened. I might be wrong. It could be places like Hungary or something where this was a problem. But for the most part, we were unique in that we made a mask wearing a political thing. And the deaths, that's the bad. Kara, you're not going to just fall in line with this, are you? What are your, what are your good? Oh, bad no. <laughs> I'm going to agree that the bad is the politics. And I think in this case, public health was driven by politics and that to some extent destroyed public health. To help, it hindered messaging. It hindered what people understood and what they felt they needed to do. The bad is the disproportionate effect it's had on women. Women oftentimes are disproportionately represented in low-wage jobs. When you have childcare that goes away, it affects them that much more. In May and June, there was a survey and 25% of women lost their job because they didn't have childcare and the men had half the rate. So they were concerned that 2 million women would be leaving the workforce and that has lots of other implications. I think the bad also isolation. I think everyone experienced isolation and what that's done to our mental health, what that's done to society. I've heard talk that some people think that we could survive a society like this. I can't imagine that, but some people have learned that they can survive being isolated and other people have found that they cannot be isolated and the mental health impacts from that. Mental health and substance abuse, which I think we're gonna be dealing with in a really, really long time. The ugly, I would say for me, the deaths is ugly because I've seen so many of them firsthand and they are very, very sad, but very ugly as well. It's just COVID is a rough way to die, whether it's quicker or, or fast. The ugly is all the family members that could not be with people that died. The ugly is the inability for us to mourn the people who have died in the way that we are accustomed to. And I think one of the ugly was we found out we have finite resources as Americans. We don't expect to have something that's limited. We feel that we have everything we need and whenever we need medical care, it's going to be there. But early in this, we developed protocols about who would get care and who wouldn't, who would get a ventilator and who wouldn't simply because we don't have enough of them. I think as an American culture, that is a very difficult thing to grasp, but something that's very, very important to learn about. And then the good, I think as a whole, internationally, nationally, and locally, the medical community came together. We learned from each other. We're used to evidence-based, peer-reviewed ways of practicing medicine. And this was the antithesis of that. That was learning from our colleagues in Italy about what works and what doesn't work about learning from our colleagues in New York about what happens when the system gets overwhelmed. It's part of how medicine is an art. There is not always an answer, but you try to do what's best for your patient. We learned a lot about ourselves. I think there's a lot of people this year that took on new hobbies and found out that relationships are good or bad and spent a lot of time by themselves kind of finding themselves and what to do. We're going to keep looking back, but this time we're going to look back and look forward at the same time. You can have one grand prize winner and you can have one honorable mention, but that's it. Of the things that we experienced that taught us something new or created some sort of innovation or some sort of change in the work that you or we do together, 
what would you most want to see carried forward, even if we somehow get back to a post-pandemic sense of normal? You ready, Will? Yeah, I'll go first. Fire away. Telework and telemedicine. So the winner is telework. The runner-up, telemedicine. Or you could exchange order there. I have to admit, being the boomer that I am, when I ran my former state agency, I was the curmudgeon who thought, oh, I don't want to do telework. Everyone's just going to go home and fix their drip irrigation. They're not going to work. <laughs> I had staff and deputies and stuff. Now, Will, you're out of touch with the times. People will get as much done. And I'm like, okay, if they have a baby, we'll let them do it. But otherwise, no. And I was a curmudgeon about telework. And I should have been more upfront when I had an opportunity to run an organization. But I think this has shown people that you don't physically have to come to work all the time to go to work. So that's going to take cars off the roads. That's going to help our air. It's going to allow people to move out of urban areas into more rural places and help out rural areas that have economically challenging situations. The telework, I think it's going to stay, and not just here, but globally. And it's going to help with carbon emissions. It's going to help with air quality on cars. It's going to help rural areas develop more easily economically. And then on the other one is telemedicine. I think that's here to stay, too, because I think there were payers that were skeptical about telemedicine and telehealth about maybe the fraud end of things. I know Access, our state Medicaid agency, has always been concerned about making sure that they have strict limits on telehealth. And I think this has shown, in fact, this natural experiment proves that it works. It's cost effective. The fraud is negligible and it has good outcomes. Kara, you get to name your own grand prize and honorable mention, but I'm certain you're going to want to address what Will just said about telemedicine. Yeah, I hope it's here to stay because I think that there is a big role for it, especially for mental health. Having said that, I think it still has to find the proper use. I will say that in the emergency department, we see visits in the emergency department all the time that came from a telehealth visit. And if it had been a visit in person, they would have not come to the emergency department. So I think that there is a big role for it. I think that it is here to stay and I hope it's here to stay, but we still have to find its niche and we have not found that yet because I'm glad it's effective, but it certainly makes for more ED visits. You still get to name your prize winners if you want. I hope that we continue to evaluate our systems and our system changes. I think we saw a lot of flaws in our system and we are aggressively making the improvements, but I hope that continues and I hope we don't forget that. For instance, we found out about testing, not the difficulty getting reagents, the difficulty of getting a test for someone. It was it the right way to have the county determine who gets a test? Was that the best way of doing it? The shortage of PPE, our limited negative pressure rooms that we have to use for patients. These are all things we found in our system, not just medical and public health, but systems in general that are broken and not ideal. And we're addressing them. And I hope that we continue to take a more proactive approach to evaluating our systems and how we can improve them without requiring another pandemic. Josh, you are up. All right. So being the university geek and the research person that I am, I'm going to go with 
those sorts of things. So I'm going to start by saying that for the grand prize here, we have for years made the arguments that there's an importance in investing in research and development because you never know when the things you do are going to become important. And I think this year has proven that beyond all measure. Five, six years ago, people started proposing this idea of developing mRNA vaccines. And a lot of folks said, do we really need another vaccine technology? Don't we have enough vaccine technologies? We've got things working already. They put money into it. They started developing it. And sure enough, their moment in the sun came. And without a doubt, they have altered how things are working for all of us. And that has been true throughout all of the research. It has been true with the sequencing technologies. It's been true with serology studies. It's been true with countless measures of technologies that have the modeling, the epidemiologists, all that stuff. Think of how fast we managed to respond to this thing. And yes, you know, we've lost a lot of lives, but where would we be if we didn't have what we have? So that would be my grand prize. And I guess the second piece of that is some of these tools that we've brought to the fore in terms of pre-publication of results, even before they get through peer review, I think those are also really valuable. I think the peer review system is great and important and we need to have it because you need to have that peer review. But there are times when you need to share information even before the time it takes to get through that process. And I think that that pre-publication was not a part of biomedicine as much as it was, for example, with physics or astronomy. But I think it now will become part of venison now because of its importance. I mean, you did not disappoint. You you did geek. You totally geeked. (laughs) Yes, I did. It should be mentioned, though, not only were mRNA vaccine technologies being pursued five years ago, but the initial bench research on mRNA started two decades ago. Sure. Yeah. Just the importance of basic science as well has been proven in spades this year. Yes. I also think that talks to uh, the importance of funding science, right? We have cutbacks all the time. And Josh, you can speak to them much more than I can, but that's something that I feel like society, politicians, whoever find is expendable. And this is a great example of you never know what you're going to need later. Yes. NIH funding had been flat for many years, which in the face of the changing economy meant that effectively research dollars were going down year over year for well over a decade. And so I'm hopeful that this will remind everyone that we can't let that happen. The other thing that that made me think of is the value in studies that do not show that something works. <laughs> you probably have, again, much better grasp on that than I do. But when we do a little study and we're always disappointed that it did not show something, and there's value in that too, Absolutely. finding out what, what did not work. This is all sounding a little too much like a victory lap, which is not the case. Right. We are a year in and we've got a long way to go still. So the final question for the day is this, going out two weeks one month, three months, what do we most need to keep our eyes on? And how do we most need to think about ways to go forward and behave? So in the next month, it's all about execution, continue to, and this is a federal and state partnership, really get the vaccine out to the pharmacies, because I'm a big believer in the direct shipment pharmacy program, get more vaccines to the federally qualified health centers, which the president has committed to, 
the next month, I think, is about execution and logistics. Within a couple of months, so by mid-May, we'll be transitioning to diving deeper into harder-to-reach populations, continuing to try to make efforts there. And then we'll finally have to start being concerned about vaccine hesitancy, I think, at that point. I don't think we have to be concerned about it yet. It's not a problem yet. There's still more people that want the vaccine than there is vaccine available. But we're going to reach a threshold, I think, in May where there's more vaccine. It's super convenient and easy, assuming nothing bad happens with one of the manufacturing plants or something like that. I read somewhere that they think that maybe vaccine hesitancy is going down as people see others get vaccinated. What do you think about that? I think that'll keep happening. Haven't we passed 2 million vaccines administered in Arizona now? Yes. And adverse events are negligible. So the more the end grows and time goes and... The way humans are, I mean, we're all scientists and stuff, so data and all that N values, P values mean a lot to us. But for a lot of people, what matters is everyone I know that's gotten vaccinated had a good experience and some people had sore arms and stuff. And some people on the second shot took a nap afterwards. (laughs) But the more good stories there are, the less resistance there will be, I think. Kara, your thought process on... Next couple of weeks, next month, next two months, next three months, what we need to be focused on. I think we need to focus on vaccination, but I also think we need to continue to do most of what we've been doing. I think we need to follow the CDC guidelines. We need to wear masks. We need to socially distance. The good thing is that there are situations that we can do that in a much safer way. And I know that this is contentious, but I think that people traveling and going for spring break is going to cause a lot of problems. And I think it's probably good that the CDC said limit travel, but that's a different story. After spring break, I think after March, beginning of April, we are going to see cases go up. My hope is that it's not a significant increase and it's not a deadly increase because of vaccinations and because so many people have had COVID in the past. And to be honest, that's almost as far as I can see. (laughs) Beyond that, I hope things only begin to improve. I hope that Biden's statement that, you know, we can have small July 4th parties is true. I hope that we continue this trajectory. Josh, how about you? This time, I think Will took the ones that I was going to use. I'm going to pivot here. I would agree, though, in the coming weeks, the immediate weeks, it's all about logistics not just mass vaccination stuff, but also thinking about how we're going to start addressing these populations that are electronically challenged or don't necessarily have all the internet that they need or whatnot, or or don't even have the time, frankly, to fill out these things during the day when you have your best shot at getting an appointment. So I think that's the immediate term. I do agree that with time, hesitancy is going to be an issue, but I'm going to go further out and say that one thing that we have to keep our eyes on is that this is not the last time we're going to face a pandemic. There are more bugs out there. And what we don't want to do is to fall into complacency and said, yep, we licked that one and we're good to go now. We got really lucky that this particular virus responded so well to vaccines. But who knows? That's not a foregone conclusion. Flu doesn't respond so well to vaccines and all kinds of other viruses don't. So we need to take the lesson from this that 
in the future, we need to maintain a robust public health system. We need to think about how we're going to respond to future infections. We have to think about what we're going to do about multi-drug resistant bugs. There's a lot of stuff out there and we need to pay attention to that too. And since we talked about it at the front, at the back end too, which is we got to pay attention to what's happening in the developing world in terms of access to this yes. vaccine through COVAX, Gavi, the CEPI initiative, the World Health Organization's efforts, but they can't do it without the resources. And that's where we can come in as a nation and help resource that COVAX effort so that we can drive a stake into this internationally. Speaking of where we started, we started with the one-year anniversary of this podcast. Will we be doing this a year from now? Will, what do you think? No, not even by 4th of July. Josh, you agree? I, I do. I think that once we start to get broad access to vaccine, things will start to normalize. Kara, are you looking forward to having a semi-normal? Is there such a thing as a semi-normal emergency room? Well, it all depends on what. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. There are some things that are here to stay in medicine. Masks, I don't know if we'll ever get rid of those. And concern about respiratory infections, how contagious are they? They're always here to stay. But going back to seeing patients who are not only COVID, which is what we're seeing now. In our emergency department, we're seeing a lot more of what we would have two years ago. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Kara. This 12-month mark with its falling case counts and rising vaccination rates was a timely moment to reflect and project. The quote-unquote normal of our pre-pandemic lives is not what we can or should aspire to, especially given the losses we have suffered and the experiences we have been through. We can learn from what was bad. We can recognize and work to change what was ugly. We can build on what we learned and what was good. In the face of the devastation that COVID has created, we can even count our luck. As Josh noted, we have actually been very lucky so far on a couple of fronts. With continued luck, vaccinations will outflank the virus's compulsion to mutate and become more problematic. Of course, vaccination efforts themselves have been and remain a point of scrutiny, particularly as it relates to equitable distribution and access. That's a topic we will most likely dig into when the roundtable returns in two weeks. The Vitalist Spark itself will be back next week. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There is a lot to listen to including guests from across the state and national experts too. And on this, the one-year anniversary, you might even want to check out that very first COVID roundtable. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.